This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey. Community-supported, independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's WPRB News and Culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Home economics. It's a term from the 1950s, one invented to professionalize the quote-unquote women's work around the house. Domestic labor. Cooking, cleaning, laundry, maybe tending a small garden or farm. There's a weird duality to it. You've created this term to make domestic work more legitimate, and then you discard this labor, this effort, as a lesser than. But tending a home is work. And as American schools have shifted toward test preparation and racing for the top, the home is getting left behind. The presence of home ec classes, now commonly known as family and consumer sciences, is declining rapidly. Budget slashing and a shortage of teachers appears to be part of the cause. And there's a stereotype of home ec learning. Basic cooking, sewing, and household math, maybe. Balancing a checkbook. But the domestic sciences of gardening, food preparation, cleaning, and clothes making have grown only more interesting and complex since the 1950s. So today on WPRB News & Culture, we reject the pigeonholing of home economics with four stories about domestic things turned on their heads. First up, we head to the garden. I speak to two people at the forefront of a community agricultural revolution. The secret? Seeds. Next up, News & Culture heads to the sewing machine. Malika J. Singh speaks to Lena Hoplamazian about her wild sewing and designing adventures, from tailoring clothes for her siblings to creating a condom dress. Then we turn to laundry. Alan Plotz explores ideas of domestic work around New Jersey, first at the Princeton Student Laundry Agency, and then in a reflection on the New Jersey Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. And finally, we head to the rubbish bin with a story from our archives. Oliver Wang learns about where our trash goes and the value of the junkyard. Stick around, we'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News & Culture. Next up, I speak to two people at the forefront of an agricultural revolution. The secret is in the seeds. Agro-biodiversity. That's a big word. I'll say it again. Agro-biodiversity. No, yeah, it's, it's still a big word, but it's actually a bigger concern. Let's separate it into its components. Agro, like agriculture, farming. Bio, like biology, so we're talking about living things. And diversity, variety, a good mix, where no one population predominates. So agro-biodiversity. When we grow living things to eat, 
do we have the right mix? The answer, and you may have guessed this, is no, definitely not. A study in the journal Nature from 2021 showed that in developed countries like the US, the diversity of the crops farmers grow is low and getting lower, as agricultural giants like Monsanto continue to grow their monopolies on seeds. American fruits and vegetables are growing alarmingly similar. This phenomenon has two pretty big consequences. One, growing the same variety of a crop across the country or across the world, this is called a monoculture, by the way, makes our food system vulnerable to diseases and climate change. Think the Irish potato famine. And two, it contributes to a culture where big business decides what people eat. Food is more than an industry, though. It's culture. It's heritage. It's freedom. So how do we bring back agro-biodiversity? How do we protect our food stock and ensure it's resilient? How do we support our food heritage to protect cultural ways of eating from big business? Today on News & Culture, I spoke to two people working on projects designed to uproot the monopolies that big business and their monocultures have on what we eat, starting from the very seed of it all. That's right, we're talking seeds. Just a few miles from the WPRB studio, things are growing at the seed farm. I spoke to Tessa Lewinsky-Desmond, the scholar and farmer in charge of the operation. My name is Tessa Lewinsky-Desmond. I'm a scholar with the uh, Efron Center for the Study of America at Princeton University, where I teach on food politics, the history of ag, food justice movements. Um, I'm the director of a project at Princeton called The Seed Farm. The seed farm is kind of like an incubator for agricultural food sovereignty projects. The work of the seed farm is to work with organizations that are already on the cutting edge of supporting community food sovereignty and help them to reestablish the seed stock that they've identified as rare and culturally meaningful for the people who are involved in their, in their organization and their network. With the scientific resources of a university behind them, Desmond and the Seed Farm are working to help cultural groups grow resilient seeds that nourish their communities. And in the process of growing them, they get multiplied, you know, orders of magnitude multiplied. And while the seeds are with us, we offer to the community partners to do research um, in, you know, any kind of research to really leverage the resources of the university to answer questions that they have about the plants about plant mutualisms, how plants facilitate the growth of each other. Um, this summer we'll be growing out okra in cooperation with um, uh, the Utopian Seed Project. We'll be growing out 2,000 okra plants and measuring okra oil seed content in those plants as the, one of the public plant breeders that we're working with is trying to um, increase oil seed content. And at the end of the season, we give them back the, the seeds that we've grown. Um, multiplied, you know, many times over. Desmond says the Seed Farm and its partners see the work as a community effort of racial and environmental justice. Our tagline is, um, we plant seeds and we tend relationships. And that's the work of the farm, all with an eye towards thinking about repair and mutualisms. It's a project of community-engaged scholarship. The folks who we work with are, are literally at the cutting edge of food sovereignty movements for their communities. They know what their communities need and want. 
and what kind of you know vision they have for the future. Our job is to just come alongside and support that really good work that they're already doing. The seed farm works with several groups, including the Munsee Three Sisters Medicinal Farm, run by the Turtle Clan of the Ramapo Lenape Nation in Ringwood, New Jersey, and the Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance in Maryland, which seeks to grow seeds for Black and Indigenous farmers. The patchwork alliance that these groups have formed is part of the broader solution Desmond sees to the crisis of agro-biodiversity. Communities should be able to grow and nurture their food as they see it. The Experimental Farming Network, based in Philadelphia, is one of the seed farm's main partners. Co-founder and co-director Nate Kleinman has a pretty big goal. My name is Nate Kleinman, and I am co-founder, co-director of the Experimental Farm Network. The goal of our project is nothing less than, than revolutionizing agriculture in America and around the world. The system that we currently have, which we have sadly spread around the world, is, uh, is contributing to the destruction of climate change. Working alongside the seed farm, Kleinman and the Experimental Farming Network, or EFN, are trying to realign our agricultural system along a more sustainable track. Uh, a big portion of what we do is working on developing plants and growing systems that can help us fight climate change. That especially means perennial crops, perennial staple crops like grains, oil seeds, and vegetables. Uh, perennial crops can take excess carbon from the atmosphere and capture it in the ground while still producing calories for human consumption, fiber for people to wear, medicine, etc. But the EFN's goal doesn't stop there. They are also trying to protect traditional farming and to reintroduce agro-biodiversity to American crops. You know, there are so many places where traditional farming is under threat. And traditional farming communities are, are critically important reservoirs for genetic diversity. You know, we've seen a huge bottlenecking over the last century of, uh, of genetic diversity in crop plants. The, the number of, um, of varieties that are available commercially has plummeted of every common species that we eat. Um, and, uh, and many, many varieties have simply gone extinct. But like the seed farm, this goal of environmental justice at the EFN is tied to racial and cultural justice as well. Food is not just something we grow, it's something we share, cherish, and most importantly, eat. It's so important that we, uh, that we preserve as much of this genetic diversity as possible. And the best people to preserve a plant variety are the people who have an ancestral attachment to it, people for whom uh, that plant is like a long-lost relative. So at, at Seed Farm in Princeton last year, we, we grew seeds from Ukraine, we grew seeds from, uh, from Syria, um, we grew seeds from, from a number of different countries, from Ethiopia, um, and, uh, and the long-term intention is to get those seeds um, back to the communities where they originated. I asked both Desmond and Kleinman how they see their work panning out. How are they going to turn seed farming into seed growing? How are we going to turn individual people into an agricultural revolution? Anyone, if you have any space where you can grow things, you can be involved in, in projects like we, we run through Experimental Farm Network. You know, the thing that I tell folks is like, you should just fall in love with a plant. You know, get to know that plant, grow that plant. Um, if you can't grow it, like get to know it, what it looks like in the woods and look for it. Pay attention to its life cycle, save its seeds, plant it again, talk with other people about it. 
Because if everyone just adopted one plant that spoke to their heart, maybe it's culturally meaningful, um, but that's one way to work to preserve agrobiodiversity is if, you know, and this is why, this is how plants and humans have engaged with each other for thousands and thousands of years. So we may be in a crisis. We may be too far from the source of our food, but this is an easy fix. It's as natural for us to love plants as it is for them to feed us. It'll be a long road, but in the end, it'll be a natural one. Plants endear themselves to us, and we make an agreement with them to care for them, and they in turn will care for us. For WPRB News and Culture, I'm Adam Sanders. WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's PhillyTenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV Princeton, community-supported independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Coming up... Malika J. Singh speaks to Lena Hoplamazian about her wild sewing and designing adventures, from tailoring clothes for her siblings to creating a dress from condoms. So yeah, the condom dress was this guy. I don't know if that is helpful. You can page through a few photos there. Um, But that was last year. And then there was the plastic bag dress. That was kind of the the follow-up to that. That voice you hear describing those titillating dresses is that of Lena Hoplamazian. I sat down with her to hear about her work in sewing and designing. My name is Lena Hoplamazian. I am a junior here. I'm from Chicago. I work at Studio Lab, which is a makerspace on campus. Um, I've been a tech there for almost two years. Um, and in addition to my like academic stuff and whatever extracurricular stuff here, I am a self-taught sewer and designer. For that dress, we like cut a bunch of them and pieces, and then for a lot of them, we like used the rim or the ridge edge of it instead of the like kind of body of the condom which just required us like washing off lube from all of these like crazy condoms and so yeah that was that was pretty fun to make um but we did it in like a day um my friend Luke had the idea of making the kind of chain mail because I'd been 3D printing chainmail for a different project that I was working on. And so I like the idea of the 
the linked pieces and then we wanted to make it like kind of bondage-esque in BDSM mm-hmm. so there's kind they kind of overlap as like a harness and then um I thought that the colors of the condoms kind of reminded me of like stained glass so mm-hmm. we did like a window pane skirt um but it was also kind of cursed because um <laughs> we were using sewing machines from Studio Lab and they were like covered in like banana scented lube for like two <laughs> weeks afterwards and my boss was like did you do this and I was like nope wasn't me I have no idea I don't know but nice. yeah that nice. was that was the condom dress and let me find like learning how to make sourdough or getting addicted to TikTok sewing for Lena is one of those pandemic hobbies During the pandemic, I bought myself a sewing machine and started kind of, I'd always been interested in thrift flips, which is like a really big TikTok trend now, but I was doing it in high school where I'd find thrifted clothes and then usually like cut them and safety pin them together. I was really into safety pinning things and I still am. I think it's like the easiest DIY hack and people are sleeping on them, but um I, uh, I've always loved kind of just like modifying clothes. And then um, during the pandemic, my older sibling moved home and they started transitioning and uh, um, their body was changing a lot and none of their clothes fit them anymore. But we couldn't go out to a tailor because it was the pandemic. So I started tailoring all of their clothes um, and got really into kind of how to create shape and form um, out of like pre-existing material. So I like rarely ever take a material and then cut it up and make something. I'm like usually reworking pieces um, or working with unconventional material, which is like kind of my happy place. Um, hence condoms. But yeah. I'm wondering about Studio Lab and your work there. Mm-hmm. I still have never been. I've always wanted to go. <laughs> I just need to like go to one of the events. Mm-hmm. But could you tell me a little bit about what is Studio Lab and what does your work there look like? Yeah, so Studio Lab is one of like six maker spaces on campus. This campus has a ton of ton of maker spaces. Um, and for folks who don't know, a maker space is essentially can be a fabrication lab, which means that it has like machines that you can go use to um, uh, 3D print and laser cut and um, kind of, you know, soldering kits, Raspberry Pi kits, um, like a lot of like technical material that is kind of hard to find or buy. Um, And they'll have access to it and trainings and things like that. and then a few of the makerspaces on campus have started to edge into the sewing realm, which means that they've started to buy sewing machines and embroidery machines, which is super popular. Um, and then um, Studio Lab has kind of, I think, an engineering, science, and technology rep. Um, there's a makerspace in the Keller Center, in the engineering library. There's a bunch of them, but all of them have this kind of like you know, people are making robots and people are like (laughs) building rockets and doing all of this stuff. And I think it feels really inaccessible sometimes to people who are maybe humanities majors or have no idea how to walk into a space and use some of that material. Um, And so I became a tech at the beginning of my sophomore year. 
Um, mostly because I saw that they were looking for technicians who knew how to use the sewing equipment because nobody knew how to use it who worked there. <laughs> um, and um, generally speaking, all of their um, employees or their staff techs were um, engineers. Um, and I'm a history major. Uh, my minor, my certificate is in architecture. Um, but I you know, had very little engineering, formal engineering background. And I think also they wanted like a token AB kid. So mm. I got hired and my specialty pretty immediately became sewing and embroidery. I got to, I'm now pretty well versed in using most of the machines there, which makes me feel like I have a lot of clout, even though I don't. <laughs> um, but I pretty much just teach anybody who comes in how to use the machines. Um, I help a lot with sewing projects. Um, Halloween is like my most busy week of the year because people will bring their costumes into Studio Lab and be like, can you make me a skirt out of this? Or like, I made like six capes this year because people would like <laughs> bring in a bed sheet and be like, I need to make a cape out of this for my costume. So I'll help with that and show people basically how to cut patterns and thread a sewing machine for the first time and the embroidery machine is mega popular um i had a few friends making merch for the school of architecture last semester some people for terrace um you can basically bring in anything and then we can do like custom made embroidery on it which is pretty cool um and then yeah just trying to actually make studio lab as a space more accessible um, right now I'm helping actually work with Share and um, a few other like groups on campus to be like a studio lab liaison because I think it's um, kind of uh, unspoken about how many people really feel uncomfortable in technology spaces here um, if they don't come from that background. I asked Lena if she had any words of wisdom to leave us with. I'll say one thing that I often tell people at Studio Lab, um, people who are interested in kind of sustainability or also um, like agency, like wanting to do things themselves. Um, I feel like that's kind of the home ec vibe. Um, and I'm a big advocate of that. I like love to cook for myself and have been a huge proponent of that my whole life. But sewing is one of those things where we all wear clothes and so often they're breaking or we want to change them in some way. But um, we've become, I think, as a generation, really detached from mending and working on things like that as a skill. Um, so if anybody is listening to this and feeling like it's super inaccessible, like I know this is a silly pitch for Studio Lab, but like, please come out, please ask a question. Like um, it is a really um, cool thing to feel like you have agency over that area of your life. Thanks so much, Lena, for sitting down and speaking with me. For WPRB, I'm Malika J. Singh. WPRB wants you to know about Mural Arts Philadelphia. Mural Arts Philadelphia, the nation's largest public art program, exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. 
This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Next up... Alan Plotz explores ideas of domestic work around New Jersey at the Princeton Student Laundry Agency and reflects on the New Jersey Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. We have 10 employees. We have a total of four, well, 12 shifts, four different times with three employees each. As per customers, I believe right now, we are around 150 bags, which means we're collecting 150 bags per week. That's Joshua Zellick. He's the executive director of the Princeton Laundry Service, which provides laundry to numerous students on campus. He's also a junior here. I sat down with Joshua to learn more about what gets students involved with running a laundry service. For WPRB, this is Alan Plotz. As it turns out, all you need is a connection to the men's track and field team, and all of a sudden, you're working at the Princeton Laundry Service. That's an exaggeration, but here's Joshua again. Even like a decade ago, there's been track and field members involved with the laundry service. My freshman and sophomore years, um, there's been uh, many guys, uh, friends, and teammates of mine um, on the Princeton track and field team who've been a part of the laundry agency, so I was fortunate enough to um, get a job with them first just as a delivery and pickup for the laundry bags. As it turns out, the laundry service doesn't do any laundry. It's outsourced to another company. We're more of a middleman. Like we work with the um, people who actually clean it and ensure like your clothes get to them and act as that way. So the cleaning service is, I believe it's called Laundry Place. Um, we have a contract with them. So I also wanted to take a look at some of the experiences of another group of people who are sometimes responsible for laundry and other tasks in the home, domestic workers. The National Domestic Workers Alliance defines domestic work as including nannies, house cleaners, and home care workers. In New Jersey, domestic workers and their allies are currently fighting for more rights through the New Jersey Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. This brings me back to an event hosted at Princeton in November about the bill. My name is Virgilio Aran. I'm an organizer. I've been organizing since 1998. Virgilio is an organizer with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. He and representatives from Unidad Latina and Acción, New Jersey, Lazos, and Cosecha, New Jersey, talked about their experiences and the bill. Domestic workers, when they turn to address um, some of their issues that they are facing, um, the first thing that the employer tends to the dependency it is to retaliate, especially when they say, hey, oh, you're paying me before below minimum wage, or I want to take a basic leave and you're not allowing me. Um, we know that there is a great amount of retaliation involved in that. So the language in the domestic bill of rights have a very strong language against retaliation. And also it's not just the language just against retaliation. We know that you can have a law written in a paper but if there is no mechanism of enforcement, then nothing happens. So one of the things that we are doing is what we call a strategic enforcement, co-enforcement also, ensuring that the Department of Labor 
receive funding to enforce the law, but also that there is funding allocated to community organizations that are working in support of domestic workers. So they can be able also to work in partnership with the Department of Labor to be able to um, execute, uh, execute basically the law. Protection against retaliation is just one part of what the bill addresses. Norma from Cosecha shares her experience as a domestic worker. If you don't understand Spanish, don't worry, there'll be a translation afterwards. Yo llevo trabajando 20 años en una casa eh, con, con una familia. Ahora ya las hijas de la, de la dueña tiene las hijas casadas. Yo trabajo con ellas, pero eh, a pesar de llevar tanto tiempo con ellas, eh, no, no he tenido el derecho de recibir un aguinaldo, de recibir eh, vacaciones, eh, días de enfermedad. Si yo no trabajo, si yo me enfermo, ellos no me pagan un solo centavo. Ellos me pagan por las horas que yo trabajo. Entonces, es muy importante que pasemos esta carta. She's been working with a family for 20 years. And so far, she has worked with uh, the children of the family and the children of the children of the family. And in all that time, she's still not allowed to have sick pay or work breaks. And they only pay her for the work she's done. And if she, does, if she gets sick, she will get no pay. Um, and this is why we need a domestic worker bill of rights. And that's Jorge, a Princeton student translating for Norma. We also got to hear from Leticia of Lazos, who shared how immigration status can be weaponized for domestic workers. In muchas ocasiones, este, somos intimidadas, verdad, por por nuestro estatus migratorio, eh, por alzar la voz, por decir, no, este, merecemos respeto. Somos seres humanos, también necesitamos un vaso de agua o algo de comer, verdad, por por las largas jornadas de trabajo que hacemos. Uh, sometimes uh, they will be threatened with their immigration status uh, whenever they uh, ask for a bottle of water or uh, amenities of the life, like food. And these are basic needs uh, when one is working that are provided in other workplaces and they should be provided uh, for domestic work. If you're interested in hearing more about the experiences of domestic workers, you can visit the site of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And you can find the full panel on the Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights on Rainio Hornalera, New Jersey's Facebook page. Since the talk happened, the bill passed the New Jersey Senate Labor Committee. Currently, organizers are trying to get the bill posted in the Senate Budgets and Appropriations Committee. So call your state senators and let them know. For WPRB, this has been Alan Plotz. WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day, free of charge, to over 250 community organizations including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio.
You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Next up, in a story from our archives, Oliver Wang speaks to Bill Freeman as he takes apart broken and junked things and sells parts to a junkyard. There are a lot of sedans in the Spruce Circle parking lot. Toyotas, Subarus, one or two Hondas. They're mainly standard colors. Navy, slate gray, black. And they're all shiny. But Bill Freeman's car isn't shiny. It's actually kind of rusty. And it's peach colored. And it's also not a sedan. It's an 88 Mitsubishi pickup truck. So when I walked into the Spruce Circle parking lot, I saw it right away. I also saw Bill, because he was standing on top of his truck, leaning on his stove. He was holding a hammer and waving at a baby. He yells something I can't understand, because he talks in a slightly garbled way. It sounds friendly, though. The baby, looking over her mom's shoulder, doesn't react. She's probably confused. The hammer and the friendly wave give off mixed signals. Bill's truck is filled with old home appliances. A grill, an air conditioner unit, a lawn chair. The stove he tries to hand down to me, but I just let it fall on the ground. Looks heavy. Bill's gonna sell all these appliances back to the junkyard. It's what he calls junking. You drive around and pick up things people leave on the side of the road. Old things, broken things, things people don't want anymore. You drive them to the junkyard and you get paid. How much you get paid depends on the value of the metal you pick up on your way. Lead is rare but the most valuable. Then aluminum, copper and brass. Then iron. There are two types of iron, light and heavy. And then tin. It's really cheap. Bill takes the appliances apart to separate the metals. He's been doing this for so long, 50 years, that he has a pretty good sense of which metal is which. The top of the stove is iron, the body, aluminum, the wires inside, copper. But if he's not sure, he has another method. He uses a red clip that has a tiny little magnet on its back. If it's a stick, that's mean it's iron. See all that? That's iron. Metal that sticks is less valuable. Lead and aluminum don't stick. If it don't stick, it's, it's worth more. Really? It's worth more if it doesn't stick? Uh-uh. See, this stainless steel, it's not going to stick. Uh-huh. So I put that over there with to separate the metal, Bill takes the appliances he finds apart. Most of his day is spent doing this. In the morning, he'll drive around Princeton, Trenton, and surrounding towns and throw stuff left on the side of the road in the back of his truck. Once it's full, he'll come back to Spruce Circle and disassemble it. There's kind of a hypnotic way Bill does this. Nothing about him is elegant in the normal sense of the word. He's got eyes that bug out asymmetrically, a bony back that's constantly stooped, and a bottom lip that juts forward. He'll slur his words and end sentences with mutters. He'll methodically shuffle around some appliance, poking at it with a screwdriver, eyeing it from under the brim of his hat, which is black, and has an I heart Jesus written on it. Also, on the brim, 
says Jesus, second time, in red font. Bill works at the appliances methodically. He'll unscrew one thing and then walk slowly around the truck back to his tools, which he keeps behind the front seat. He'll grab a wrench and cut a wire, then walk back around the truck slowly to his tools again. Eventually, he'll decide it's ready and pull out a side of the appliance or smack it with a hammer. It usually just falls apart. It's a stove. Yeah, that was a stove. <laughs> it was a stove. There are three things lying behind the truck. Two AC units and a grill. The grill is lying on its side. The cooking tray was already taken out, and all that's left is the top, which is open and attached to one side of the frame. Bill is trying to unscrew it, but the screws are rusted over, pretty much buried in the side of the grill. It's making me mad. Making you mad? Yeah. Very mad. And so Bill goes over and grabs a wrench, about the size of his leg, from behind the truck seat. He walks over, slowly, methodically. What's that tool? Oh. oh God! <laughs> big He drops it and walks inside, slowly. He walks back right. out with a sledgehammer dragging behind him. Bill used to be a mechanic and garbage man and a cotton picker and hand at the loading docks. That was back when he was living in South Carolina where he spent his youth. He didn't really have a choice when he was younger. He graduated high school, but afterwards, he just, he had to work, constantly. Because we had to survive. Being black in South Carolina in the 60s uh, was not easy. Bill would work 16-hour days, and he was still poor. But he got in the habit of working to survive. He needed to do it. He's 76 now. Spruce Circle is a home for the low-income elderly in Princeton. And he still works, every day except Sunday, when he watches football and goes to church. On the weekdays, he'll get up in the morning, go to church, then get in his truck, the 88 Mitsubishi, and drive around. Bill spends some 10 hours a day doing this, junking. Because once he picks up all the roadside appliances, takes them apart, he stuffs the parts back into his truck, really high. I would be terrified to drive behind this. <laughs> Why? Because what if something comes I, off? I, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm going to show you something. Bill grabs this old tattered piece of rope out of his truck 
and starts tying it around the aluminum lawn chair that's balanced precariously high on top of a ridiculously high metal mound. He just loops it around things that look like they can be looped around. Then he grabs a bungee cord and hooks it onto two ends of the rope. There's no sense to it as far as I can see, but he seems pretty satisfied. We get in the truck. It starts surprisingly well. The stack of metal in the back is ridiculous looking. People stare as we drive past. But when we pull up to the junkyard, no one stares. Well, at least no one stares at Bill. He's here three or more times a week. The workers do stare at me, though, with my audio equipment and bright blue shirt. I stand out there. Everyone else is kind of dressed like Bill. Loose-fitting clothes, steel-toed boots. Of course, they're in uniform, too. Bright construction vests. Bill and I pull up onto a big scale. 3340, the electronic numbers read. A voice tells us to move, and we pull through, towards a huge open space with scraps of metal everywhere. There are three big machines out here. They each have big clawed hands, like in those boardwalk games where you try to pick up stuffed animals. One is methodically disassembling a giant shipping container. The open claw bends down and clamps onto it, crushing the metal and pulling it apart, chunk by chunk. It tosses these chunks next to me and Bill. Bill and I unload the scrap metal from the back of his truck. We toss it on the ground. This is all the iron that Bill collected. Iron is the cheapest metal, and it just gets weighed and tossed into the junkyard haphazardly, as a whole. People will come along later to melt it down and turn it back into something to sell. The rest of the metal that Bill collected, the aluminum, the copper, the stainless steel, is bought separately by the junkyard. When we pull back out of the open space, the scale reads 2880, 2880. Started, remember, with 3340. So that was around 500 pounds of metal that we just tossed. We go up to the counter to pay. All right, how you doing today? This is the man behind the desk. He was the one who told us to move forward on the scale. Sir. Thank you. And have, have a nice great day. night. You got it. All right. Hands bill, $35. All right. $35. That's it. For a day's yeah. worth of work. Right. Cash? Huh? It's in cash, right? Yeah. We got yeah. On the way back, Bill buys a sticky bun and a Coke. We drive back, this time in an empty truck. do this again the next day and the day after that but not on Sunday Sundays he goes to church there's no real beauty in the day to day work of junking like you won't fall in love with it once you try it you also won't get rich 
I mean, if you listen to Bill, he'll tell you not to do it. Don't do what I'm doing, he'll say, laughing. But there's a sort of beauty when you look at the work as a whole, which is what you can do when you reach Bill's age. You can be reflective and habitual. There's a kind of beauty in the idea of collecting things every day. Old things, broken things, things no one wants anymore, things that were put together years and years ago. And then there's a beauty in taking them apart. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB Studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's producer, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by myself, Alan Plotz, Malika J. Singh, and Oliver Wang. Our editors are Hannah Lee, Clara McQueenie, Izzy Jacobson, Alan Plotz, and Henry Moses. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. All other music used is under Creative Commons license. Details can be found at our website at news.wprb.com. Can't get enough of news and culture? Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts, or at our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WPRB News. That's at WPRB News. WPRB News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.